0: best thing to win the masters you, you will be here forever as long as you are still alive so that's the best thing i'm very happy
1: welcome to talking golf history on what we may call a preamble to our show antiquities of the game today we tell the story of two golf antiquities and one of these relics from days past represents perhaps the greatest golf artifact of all time Young Tom Morris's putter, the very same putter that he won four open championships with that helped change the game of golf, open the door to the first ever open rota, the first ever gold medal for a major and the iconic Claret jug. Without further ado, let's dive into antiquities of the game. Welcome to talking golf history and a special episode we're calling Antiquities of the Game, where we tell the history of golf through two unique historical items. Before we start, I'd like to give a special thanks to the golf auction. Today, we're filming and recording live at Golf Auction Headquarters in Tampa, Florida, where soon they will be auctioning off these two amazing items. Let's welcome our guest, Stephen Proctor, writer, author, golf historian, Monarch of the Green, the story of young Tom Morris. Thank you for coming on the show. As always, Connor, it's a pleasure to be here. Looking forward to talking about these two great items. That's amazing. What we have in front of us today is really staggering, isn't it? No, it is. Two, these are two really apocryl moments in the game that we'll be talking about, so it's going to be an exciting show. So the first item we're going to discuss today is made of gold, though it wasn't always made of gold. It dates back after the championship belt and before the claret jug. It's made of gold, but it wasn't always made of gold. And we're talking about the 1921 Open Championship medal won by Jock Hutchinson. What can you tell us about Jock Hutchinson before we get into the medal? Certainly. You know, Harry Varden came to the United States in 1900, which
0: was only two years after the game had been more or less permanently established at the St. Andrews Golf Club in New York. And he made a grand tour of the United States, displaying astonishing golf throughout setting records many places he went almost undefeated he did get beaten a few times but he mostly won every match he participated in and it created enormous interest in golf and very soon after that golf clubs started springing up all over the nation and the thing is just as it was true in britain when golf started in the united states if your club wanted to have its bona fides, it needed to have a genuine scottish golf professional So huge opportunities sprung up for men from Scotland to come over and become professionals in the United States, and one of the men who did that was Jock Hutchinson. He arrived in the United States around 1907, coming from St. Andrews, where he'd been born on 30 North Street in 1884, and he became a fixture in the American golfing scene uh, from pretty much his first time he entered the the United States Open Championship in 1908 uh, through his many, many years later as an honorary starter for the Masters. Winner of two major championships, including the one for which we will be showing off and discussing the gold medal, but he also won the 1920 PGA Championship over Long Jim Barnes. So he had a very illustrious career, 14 wins on the PGA Tour during that career, in addition to the two majors. And uh, as an older golfer, he became really probably into his own Frankly, as a golfer, he uh, was the winner of the first Senior PGA Championship and went on to win that event uh, eight different times. Really, the reason that he became a starter for the Masters, he became enormously popular as a senior golfer and was invited to become a starter for the Masters along with Freddie McLeod in 1963.
1: Yeah, there's a great story that we shared on uh, one of our former podcasts, the Golf Club Without a Course about how he may have made his way to the United States by caddying for Eben Byers in the British Amateur Championship at St. Andrews. I thought he started at the Pittsburgh Golf Club, but you mentioned he might have had a a starting spot prior to that here in the United States. Well, according to
0: Shell's Golf Encyclopedia, which was one of the sources I used to find a little more out about Jock Hutchinson, he began initially at St. Andrews Golf Club, and I believe he was only there one year, and then he moved to the Allegheny Golf Club in Pittsburgh, and from there, later in his life, to the Glenview Golf Club in Chicago, which is the club he's most associated with.
1: You skipped one. Oh, he was skip- at Pittsburgh Golf Club for uh, one year, Pittsburgh 1909. Pittsburgh Golf Club, yep. okay, yes. Yeah. So that's also Allegheny's
0: in Pittsburgh. Correct. And I guess it was a neighboring club he joined there as well, you're right.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, it's just fascinating. So, you know, it's not uncommon back in those days for club pros to jump around from club to club, and certainly that was, is his early history here in the United States, too.
0: Yes you know I think what would happen to you is when you began to make your name for yourself by finishing high in us opens or in major PGA championships, you would then be offered better deal at a bigger club and that's what happened to Jock he uh, Glenview Club was a very major club in Chicago, and I think he finished out his career there and spent most of his time there. but that was after
1: he started to establish himself as a top level golfer in the United States so one of his first Big debuts, if you will, outside of the U.S. Open is the 1916 first ever PGA Championship. How did he fare in the 1916 PGA Championship? He finished second
0: in that championship, and uh, Jim Barnes was the winner, I believe. And uh, he played quite well. And you know that was uh, one of the things that first made him a name golfer in the United States was that second place finish. He finished in the final eight players of the championship. I don't know how many modern golfers will remember that it was a match play event at the beginning modeled after. The British uh, PGA Championship was known in those days as the News of the World Championship because that was the newspaper that created and sponsored it. And uh, it was a match play event. And he went to the final eight, uh, I believe it was eight times in that thing. He was second twice yeah, and uh, and won once. So he uh, he played quite well at match play as, as Scottish golfers generally tended to do.
1: He came in second in another famous event 1916, the U.S. Open to Chick Evans. Yes, the
0: the great Chick Evans, probably, you know, I would say one of the two or three greatest amateur golfers the United States has known. And so uh, that that particular little decade there was was a great decade for American amateur golf because there were nine open championships during that decade, and three of them were won by amateur players, one by Francis We met one by Chick Evans, and one by Jess Sweetser, I believe it was. And so, you know, that was... The American equivalent of the Great Decade of British amateur golf uh, in 1890 to 1900. So uh, it was a great time for amateur players, and Chick Evans was uh, was the winner. But it's interesting
1: uh, you mention that because I mean, just as a a parallel to that is the decade of dominance of the British players is almost echoed here. We had almost a decade of dominance in the United States before the pro game really took over. It's,
0: well, you know, you actually – you also had that, yeah. the Bobby Jones era that followed up after sure. that. and during so, so two during, decades, maybe. During, during 1930s and 1920s, you know, amateur golf in the United States remained quite powerful, and, there, and there's a reason for that. You know, when golf first moved into England in the 1860s – 1864 is the foundation of the very first English golf club at Royal North Devon and Westward Ho – Uh, And that was, by that I mean, a golf club where the players were English. There were golf clubs in in England that were mostly Scottish players, Blackheath, Manchester. But the first really, truly English club was Royal North Devon in 1864. And the pattern in Britain is almost repeated in every detail in the United States. When Game moved to Britain, it was mostly wealthy people who took it up. Uh, And that was true early in the United States. And for that reason there were a preponderance of the great golfers in the early years in Britain uh, were amateurs, and the same was true in the United States. And then as the game became more widely distributed in the country, more golf clubs were built, so many that it wasn't always possible to have a Scottish professional that you would then get homegrown professionals. That started happening in England in the middle 1890s, after 30 years of of pretty steady growth in the number of golf courses, Tom Varden being one of the very first of those, Harry's younger brother, followed by Harry himself and by John Henry Taylor. And then the same pattern repeated itself in the United States, where it took years before there were enough professionals playing for
1: them to completely overtake the amateur players. Interesting fact for those at home, uh, Chick Evans won the U.S. Amateur and U.S. Open with only seven clubs. Yeah,
0: that is interesting to the modern player, but it was very typical in that age not to carry that many clubs. Younger players like Tommy Morris only carried seven clubs, and I don't know precisely what was in Chick Evans's set, but a typical set for that age would have included a driver, a spoon, which would be the equivalent of a fairway wood today, a brassy, which would be the equivalent of like a three wood. And then you would have a cleek, which would be like a two iron. You would have a mid iron that was about the loft of a six iron. You would have a mashy, which was a seven iron or thereabouts, a niblick and a putter. And that was the typical set of clubs that would be carried for golf in those days. And... uh, you know, So it, it is unusual to the modern player, but it was not rare in that age. Most players carried relatively
1: few clubs. And certainly within four years from that, sets started to explode. And we started seeing players carry as many as 20, 30 clubs.
0: Yes, and I think the when it really got out of control was Lawson Little. Lawson Little carried over 30 clubs in some of the rounds that he played. He, and uh, it got to be so absurd that the R&A and the USGA established the 14-club limit that we have today as a consequence of that, partly for mercy to the caddies, hauling 32 clubs around a golf course and however many balls and whatever else you have in your bag. Right-handed, left-handed clubs. Yeah, it had to be pretty difficult.
1: You know, I found a a little interesting research on this, because I, too, have always blamed Lawson Little. And I found an article, and it was the USGA president at the time, and I'm, I'm not going to remember whose name it was, but he actually blamed it on Walter Hagen. So Walter Hagen, I think it was in the 1932 U.S. Open, was carrying 27 clubs in his bag. And the odd thing about Walter Hagen is he carried so many clubs, not necessarily to use them, but he was sponsored by so many different companies. And that so he, doesn't <laughs>
0: surprise me at all. You know, I've read a, a, a fair number about, of things about Walter Hagen. I'm not an expert in his life by any means, but, but he was definitely the first American player and probably the first player anywhere to seriously take advantage of golf in all of its financial angles with sponsorship, playing
1: exhibitions and so forth and so on. So that isn't surprising at all to me. Yeah. So before we move on to Jock, and I've, I've shared this before on our podcast, my favorite quote of all time in golf history has to do with Chick Evans carrying seven clubs. And Bob Jones was asked in 1930, after he won the impregnable quadrilateral, he was asked, how do you feel about... Using 14, he used 15 clubs in the Open Championship, but how do you feel about using 14 clubs when Chick Evans won the U.S. Open and the U.S. Amateur with seven? It's one of my favorite quotes. He said, well, I suppose it's better to be a master of seven than vaguely familiar with 14. <laughs> That's so <laughs> Only Bobby. Only said like he could, right? Yeah. It's so brilliant. So let's go back to Jock Hutchinson. So he has another fabulous year in 1920. He's the runner up in the PGA. I'm sorry, he wins the PGA Championship. Yes. And he's the runner up to Ted Ray in the 1920 U.S. Open. Yes. A wonderful year for him. You know, and
0: uh, he, uh, that was right after the end of the World War and golf was resuming. He had seen that unfortunate lot of players who lost many of their prime years to, to World Wars, including uh, Varden. Uh, Perhaps one of the greatest tragedies of all time. Yes, and George Duncan, who uh, was really coming into his own just before the war broke out in England in 1914. And British players and Scottish players had six years of no golf. And, of course, tremendous devastation to their country that was very difficult for them to recover from in the years after the war. Uh, But Hutchinson, you know, that was a key year for him and set him up for his biggest moment in golf history the following season. Yeah,
1: 1921. He goes over and plays St. Andrews for the Open Championship. Yes. What can you tell us about that event? Well, first off,
0: Jock Hutchinson was born in St. Andrews on 30 North Street. North Street has produced an extraordinary number of Open Champions. The Morrises, Jamie Anderson, Jock Hutchinson. So he was born there on 30 North Street in 1884, and he returned to uh, Scotland, very early that year he celebrated the new year uh in scotland and was they have a celebration there of the new year called Hogmany, and uh it's going to other people's houses and and partying and uh jock hutchinson was apparently had quite a rowdy evening then i do believe he returned to the united states for a brief period after that but he returned very early very many weeks before the open championship so he could play saint andrews over and over and be prepared and he stayed with his family on North Street while he was there. But interestingly, uh, when, he, when the championship began, he moved into the Grand Hotel with all the American golfers. Ooh, you know, Jock Hutchinson yeah. was an American citizen and quite proud of that uh, by the time he had gone to play in the Open Championship in 1921. And he, um, you have to keep in mind that during this period of time, the British can see that the American game is improving in what they would consider a menacing pace, uh, and that, you know, Walter uh, Travis in 1904 had already come over and taken the Amateur Championship a mere four years after Varden's tour, and they thought of that as an aberration instead of uh, a, a portent trance. of sure. things to come. Absolutely, And, of course, Arno Massey came over from France and won the first Open one by a person not from England or Scotland in
1: 1907. and but he they, was living in Scotland at the time, so it was like an asterisk for them? Yeah,
0: a little bit of an <laughs> asterisk. So they were always grasping at straws to continue British superiority in the game. And so uh, when uh, the war ended, fortunately, George Duncan got his just desserts by winning the first championship after the war, but Jock Hutchinson's win in 1921, he won the Open Championship in uh, very convincingly in 1921, he was a nervous, fidgety player, but he played quite well throughout the whole championship, posted a 70 in the final round to win, which in that age yeah, was a score. A hell of a score, right? And uh, so, But the prize ceremony was where things began to go sideways.
1: Before you go there, before his words, do you think the Scottish elite, the Scottish establishment, do you think they were willing... Prior to the award ceremony, to still accept him as his own before his words. Oh, absolutely right. They I mean, so were he, he's a native citizen.
0: They were desperately clinging, and the, the, the thing was, he lived in the United States and had lived there obviously for many years by 1921, and he had become an American citizen. But as far as Scots were concerned, he he's was a Scottish home. golfer. Yeah, he's coming home. He learned his golf on the links of St Andrews, and that was enough for them to feel as if the championship had quote remained in Britain. But, but then at the prize ceremony. Uh, Jock Hutchinson, the Green Committee chairman, is the person who at that age traditionally presented the trophy to the winner. And Jock Hutchinson, when he was printed the trophy, said, I am an American. I am an American citizen now, and I'm quite proud of that, and I'm taping the trophy back to America. And, you know, as you can imagine, that didn't sit well with the Scots, and particularly not with Scots living in St. Andrews. Um, The Green Committee chairman traditionally would call for three cheers for the winner after he had presented the trophy. He presented the trophy pretty much silently to Hutchinson and then called for three cheers to the person he'd beaten by nine strokes in a playoff, <laughs> which was Roger Weathered, uh, an amateur golfer from Britain who was uh, quite well-renowned and whose sister Joyce is, is one of the greatest golfers ever to play the Absolutely. game. Absolutely, Wow.
1: Stunning. First time, probably. I mean, we don't know probably for sure, but if the tradition was three cheers... To the champion had to have been one of the first times, if the first time ever, that it was, a, you know, three cheers to the runner up. I do know this, Connor. In 1904,
0: when the amateur championship trophy was presented to Walter Travis at Royal St George's in Sandwich, it was a very awkward ceremony there. Also, I believe it was Lord Northbourne, but I could have that name wrong now. Who, who just gave a hugely rambling speech about, uh the British never having been assaulted in this way uh, since Romans came over and this and that and the other thing. And Travis is sitting there silently. He has no idea what to say. The guy hands him the trophy and he says, I'm hopelessly bunkered. I pick up my ball. And, uh, that was, that was the ceremony. So it wasn't the first time the British, um, uh, didn't respond as well as they might've done. And even Bernard Darwood admit that, uh, to, um, Americans taking their trophies across the ocean. And, uh, so, their, their hope was that they could continue to claim that only Scotsmen and Englishmen won it because Jock Hutchinson was a Scotsman. Right. Uh, Despite what
1: he decided to say on stage. He
0: wasn't uh, much of a mind to agree with that at that point. And uh, so, it was a long time after that before the bitter feelings toward Hutchinson uh, diminished in St. Andrews in particular and in Britain generally. Yeah.
1: And for the record, Jock Hutchinson became the first ever American citizen to win the Open. We don't I mean that's forgotten history for the most part.
0: Yes, People and I think what it. happens is the following year Walter Hagen comes over and he wins. And then when that happens in 1922 there is one more British win by Arthur Havers at Troon. And then it's at what I would the British would consider to be a very long dark night before Henry Cotton is becomes the next British person to win the open in 1934. So they went through a very difficult period for British golf where you know the Americans just had Clearly, almost instantaneously after the war, become the dominant players in, Amer- in golf. Yeah. And uh, that was a very difficult blow to the national psyche of Britain and, in particular, uh, of Scotland.
1: Yeah, and we do attribute that, or most attribute that to Walter Hagan, but you have Jock Hutchinson prior and then Walter Travis. 20 years prior. Right. Really leading the way, that American After Walter
0: Travis, Americans started coming over all the time. Jerome Tavers came to try to win the Amateur Championship and others. And uh, so there was, you know, the British, from the very beginning, referred to it as the American menace, spreading its dark shadow over the land. That's the way they described uh, the arrival of Walter Travis and his victory and then the continuation of, of the American onslaught on their championships. And honestly, very soon after the Americans started winning in the 1920s, uh, people from other nations began to win on a semi-regular basis, Australia, South Africa. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, so it's it's um, essentially after the First World War, the age of British dominance in golf is over.
1: I, I saw, I, I think it was Darwin, but I'm not sure. There was a, a beautiful article written around that. It was around 1920s, the early 1920s, where it talked about the American invasion of Britain And the the really attributed Americans winning because of the intensity that we look at putting versus the rest of the game. That is true, and Darwin commented on that often.
0: The Americans were practicers, whereas the British were never practicers. If you have had the privilege of going to England or Scotland to play golf, you'll notice that almost no courses have a driving range or a practice facility of any kind except maybe a putting green. Uh, when you wanted to practice in Britain prior to the first war, you took a club out to a lonely part of the course and you hit shots with it until you felt you had it under control. But there was no such thing as the American approach to the game where you went to a driving range and you hit ball after ball after ball. Americans were big practitioners particularly putting. And they, you know, they worked on their stroke in a way. British took the game much more casually uh, in general than the Americans did, they, they, even in competitive events.
1: You might even say today. Yes, I still With think a to a certain degree versus they do. The, you know, the typical influence or the American ideal of chasing score, a four ball takes that out and makes it a team event more of a, an affair versus a, a challenge. Yes, eh, the Scottish, is th- th- that
0: is, the, the emphasis on score
1: is interesting because the minute
0: the game moved out of Scotland, and partly because of Tommy, Tommy was posting scores that were absurd. You know, when he posted the 18... In 1870, when he won the championship belt and claimed it as his own property for all time, he shot 149 for 36 holes, which is the modern equivalent of of a 74 or a 75. Amazing, right. You know, and people were winning golf tournaments there with scores in the high 80s, 86, 88. And uh, so that was just such a shock. And it also gave people this idea of, wow, you could score really, really low at this game. But the people who caught on to it were really the English. And there was a – really, when you th- – the minute the game leaves Scotland, first when it goes to England and, and even more so when it comes to America, the fundamental character of the game begins to change in ways that the Scottish found you know repugnant, essentially.
1: Absolutely. Uh,
0: the English were – they would count their score in a match. And they would hold out every putt in a match, even if it was conceded, so that they could mark their score down. And that made the Scots, like, absolutely insane. Like, the idea of counting your score was bad enough, but to count your score in a match you know, uh, was, was, was lunacy as far as they were concerned. And, uh, and, you know, the British wanted to have handicap competitions all the time and get trophies for lame golfers. Was the, and and, and Scotland, <laughs> like Scotland was of the belief that a serious competition is a scratch competition. The idea that somebody who didn't shoot the lowest score won something and put it up on their mantle was, was something they couldn't quite wrap their minds around. And uh, so the Americans were even more obsessed with their score, and that is why they practiced so crazily. And uh, so that really changed the character of the game in
1: significant ways. I love it. Let's get into the history of the medal itself. So we have in front of us uh, a 1921 Open Championship gold medal won by Jock Hutchinson. Let's talk about the history of the gold medal for the Open Championship, because it, it ties back to our hero and your hero of your story, young Tom Morris. Yes. So, in 1870, when Tommy the challenge belt
0: was originally issued in 1860 when the championship began. And the goal then was if you could win the tournament three times in a the row, the, the, the trophy became your personal property. Uh, it was a valuable trophy. Uh, it cost 25 pounds sterling to make, which was a lot of money. In 1860, it was red leather Moroccan belt with a big, bold buckle. Uh, that picture there... Cuts the belt off, but he, Tommy's wearing the belt in that picture. And when he won it and made it his personal property, they didn't quite know what to do next. There, no, was, there was no plan. There was a dispute at Presswick. A man named Gilbert Mitchell Innes, who was a very great amateur golfer in that age, proposed that the championship be expanded to include all the Great Links and that St. Andrews and Musselboro be invited to join in the championship. But the man who ran Presswick, Harry Hart, was um, naturally quite proud of what the Open Championship had become. You know, it became the first event ever covered by English papers, for instance, partly because London gamblers wanted to bet on it. And uh, so they, just did, they did, in the end, reach, agree as a club to reach out to St. Andrews and Musselboro. But, you know, clubs in those era were not really enamored with professional golf. They were much more interested in amateur competitions and with their own members And it took a year before there was an agreement to purchase a new trophy, and they purchased the claret Jug jointly, the three clubs, and the regrettable truth was that when they had the Open Championship exactly one month later, so it was rather an informal thing at the time, uh, they didn't have the trophy. The trophy was not yet completed, and they didn't know what they would give the winner, and so they decided to give the winner a gold medal. So, Tommy uh, was the winner of the first gold medal also, and ultimately the first person to have his name inscribed on the Claret Jug, although that didn't happen until the following year when it was presented uh, to the man who dethroned him as the four-time consecutive Open Championship, Tom Kidd, who is a caddy in St. Andrews, and a long hitter, a big bomber. Uh, So, you know, that's when the gold medal is
1: first issued. The first ever gold medal, and it's... This gentleman right here, young Tom, young Tom Morris, is really responsible for the medal we have in front of us.
0: Yes, I've seen it. It's in the Royal and Ancient Golf Club at St. Andrews, and uh, it's, 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 you know, a wonderful item to see. He, uh, you know, I don't believe the original medals were made of gold, but... No, they were
1: silver gilt. And what's also unusual is from 1872 to 1892, I'm sorry, 1891, they were more oval, Than they were this the round typical medal that we know today, Uh, and I believe it said uh, golf championship trophy rather than open golf championship. Yes, on the trophy. So I thought I think that's interesting how it changed. But you're right. Um, I did a little research on this, and I I suppose I knew this, but I didn't know how long it was silver gilt. It was silver gilt from 1872 to 1893. Willie Park Junior, the son of. Tom Morris's nemesis, uh, Willie Park Sr., argued and refused his second Open Championship medal because it was touted as a gold medal, and he was so incensed that the RNA would give anyone a medal that was said to be gold that was silver gilt. So it's said that he only kept one medal. He refused it. And it wasn't until years later in 1893 that William Ochterlony won the first official real gold medal. But what I find fascinating about that even more so is in 1892, and we talked about this a little bit, Harold Hilton won the Open Championship at Muirfield. The weird thing about the 1892 championship is that the medal doesn't match young Tom's version, and it doesn't match William Octorloin's version. It's a unique medal to itself. You know, I do
0: not know the story behind that. I don't either. But, um, it's fascinating. You know, there was a huge amount of animosity that preceded the 1892 Open, and I know that's a subject very dear to your heart <laughs> from your own podcast. Yeah. But, you know, the the year 1891 was the year that the Honorable Company of Edinburgh Golfers abandoned Musselboro and moved out to its own golf course at Muirfield. Part of that was... Musselboro was getting a huge amount of play at that time. Yeah. Very Multiple overcrowded. Clubs. And, of course, the, the, the overcrowding left a lot of damage to the links in terms of divots and other things. And, uh, you know, there was a sense brewing, I don't think among the general golf population, but I think certainly among some of the upper-level clubs that it was getting more and more difficult to have the open at Muirfield for two reasons. One, the fact that it was a smallish nine-hole course although a very difficult test of golf, and quite a more difficult test of golf than the first Muirfield, that's yes. for sure. I
1: and mean, that was the other piece, right? Is Tom Morris designs Muirfield a year before it opens for an open championship.
0: Right, and it was a very small course then, and the scoring for that first open in 1892 was phenomenally, absurdly low. Low, yeah. Uh, there were rounds of 73, which, you know, is 15 shots lower than you would expect. Yeah. Well, I mean, not 15, but at least 10. And uh, so they did lengthen and toughen the course because of the brutal criticism they got. But moving the championship from muscle caused a great deal of unrest in the golf world. And I don't know if that had anything to do with changing the nature of the medal or anything. I don't know why they made the medal look different. But uh, That's interesting, though, right? But uh, they, there was a lot of hostility that preceded that. And it lingered, too. Bad feelings lingered after that. But the second problem I did want to say about Musselburgh was that so many people were entering the Open Championship by 1892 that there was a serious question as you could, whether you could get enough people around a nine-hole, nine-hole links course, yeah. before the sunset. And the previous time they had had the Open there, they almost didn't get to finish because of daylight. So that was another problem that contributed to All the, those
1: people playing, too, Yeah, changes Prestwick. Prestwick goes from 12 to 18 in the 1880s. 1888, I think yes. it was, yeah. And for that same reason. I mean, they were just getting so many entries. Into the Open Championship, it became overcrowded. It was partly that at
0: Presswick, but it was also partly that by that time, uh, St. Andrews being 18 holes and St. Andrews' reputation increasingly exceeding that of Musselboro or any other links yes. as the epicenter of the game. You know, really in the early ages, they would have been considered you know, pretty much near equals as epicenters of the game. Uh, but uh, it became fashionable to have 18 holes like St. Andrews. And many, many courses expanded from 9 to 18, or in the case of Presswick, from 12 to 18, to catch up with the trend.
1: Absolutely. So I'm going to bring up one more thing before we move to our next artifact. And we've talked about this a little bit. We don't have an answer. But what's very unusual about this gold medal from 1921 is on the opposite side, and I will read it here. Part of this is typical from an open championship medal. It usually says winner. It's made of gold. Uh, And then it'll have the player's name and date and usually the score. But this Open Championship medal is different. It says winner, British Open Championship. Jock Hutchinson, June, doesn't put the score. British Open Championship. And and we talked about this a little bit, that it looks like, we don't know, but it looks like it's possibly added later um, because the words are so cramped in on the medal. It's very odd. I've never... Um,
0: that's the first time I'd ever seen that medal was this morning, uh, live and in person. And, uh, you know, it does look like it might have been put on there. I have no idea. You know, obviously, uh, it would fit in with Jock's storyline <laughs> of I'm an American. I'm an American so citizen. So there, there, let's put there, British there, Open there Championship. There is that. You know, but it's interesting because, you know, when the first when the championship first started, it was not called the Open Championship. It wasn't even an Open Championship yeah. in the first year. It was only open to, to, as they called them, reputable caddies. That's right. Uh, but they had to be recommended by the club. By their own They're, club, yes. yes. And they all had to wear like a little hunting jacket like so they could like be clad. identified as players and watched carefully because <laughs> they right. weren't trusted. They couldn't, couldn't be
1: trusted. Right. right.
0: So, uh, but the, um, it was only in the second year that they opened it up to amateur players, and so it became an open championship. But it was, you know, uh, obviously there wasn't a huge amount of golf coverage in those days. And so but by the time you get serious golf coverage all the time around 1888 1890 uh it's always referred to as the Open Championship by then. So I'm not sure how British Open Championship would have gotten on that medal. I don't I'm not aware of other medals having it. The other medals just say Open Championship. 100% true. So it's it's I mean it's a mystery to be unravelled.
1: Yeah, the only other time that I can think off the top of my head. Now there are thousands of reference, uh, references. Sorry, there are thousands of references in the British press, at calling it a British Open, even in that period. Which I yes. find, but it's usually coming from London. Occasionally from Edinburgh, you never hear that coming out of out of like St Andrews. That never happens.
0: You know, it was common in the press to refer to it that way. It was also common to refer to it the other way. It went. It went back and forth. Um, so, but, but. Uh, you know, it's an interesting thing, and, and you know, perhaps there's somebody out there listening to this that knows the story and and can you share need to it. Solve the mystery. Yeah, that's
1: what I'm getting at, right? I yes. think it's a fascinating mystery. That um, so, I suppose those of you at home that are corrected on social media for coin at the British Open, uh, there are two points to argue. Uh, one is obviously this medal that is historic. The second one is you can find it on YouTube. There's a newsreel where Bobby Jones is receiving the claret jug. I think it's 1927, but don't quote me on that, and. Uh, The person presenting the trophy says, the British Open Championship winner, Bobby Jones. (laughs) You know, I think, honestly, I feel like there was a period in time
0: when the Open Championship ceased to be as worldwide popularity that it had in the past. Uh, In the era after Hagen and Jones, say after about 1940, there was a period when the championship didn't get many visits from America. The, The purse for the championship was always quite low, by comparison to other things. Uh, for instance, in Tommy Morris's own lifetime, he won more winning the Royal uh, Liverpool Tournament in 1872. He won almost twice as much as he won uh, winning the Open Championship that, that later that same year. I think the Open Championship prize was eight pounds, and he won 15 pounds uh, wow. at Royal Liverpool. So they always had uh, an unusually low purse, and uh, Americans would have difficult time Uh, justifying traveling. You had to come by boat most of those years, and it was a long journey and an expensive journey, and a lot of Americans just didn't think it was worth it because even if they won, they might not make a profit. Uh, And uh, it wasn't really until Frank Stranahan the amateur started coming over, that Americans returned in any way to British championships. Post-World War II. Yes, and then after that, when Arnold Palmer started playing it on a regular basis, I think Arnold was a person who had a big view of the history of the game, and he was a person who adopted the point of view that you'll never be considered a golfer for all time if you haven't won the Open Championship, and Preffly the Open Championship at St. Andrews. But uh, and then the, So I'm guessing, and this is a complete guess, that the focus on Open redoubled as during the period of Fallonists because that gave it the cast of originality of where everything begins. And certainly, uh, as you say, in many periods, the British themselves refer to it as the British Open. So it's difficult to say.
1: I look at it a little differently. I suppose in the 1920s, obviously, we had this American invasion. So prior to the 1920s, our U.S. Open often called itself the Open Championship because we didn't have this influx of travelers. We had Varden and Ray occasionally coming over, yeah. but it wasn't the influx that we have like today. The same was true until really the 1920s where we had this large influx of professionals and amateurs going to play in the Open Championship. And I almost wonder when you're starting to have this transcontinental you know, uh, play between both you know countries, between the U.S. Open and the Open Championship, that... There was an effort and sometimes to differentiate or specifically in announcing Jones. I'm sure the person giving him the trophy is thinking from an international standpoint, not the Open Championship. He's doing this because he knows it's going to be viewed in the United States of where we sometimes call our U.S. Open the Open Championship. You know, It's it's you know, the thing about it is whatever you want to
0: call it. Only one thing is true. The original golf championship is the is the Open Championship of Britain in 1860. That's the first championship for professionals anywhere. And, and the th- first gold medal. That will always be true.
1: Yeah. The other really cool factoid for those at home, and I just think, I just, I love this, is that the Open Championship gold medal predates the Olympic gold medal, which the Olympic gold medal started in 1904. And I think you had a little bit with 1896 being the first well, the modern first modern
0: Olympic, Olympic games. games took place in Athens in 1896, and I'm, I haven't researched this specifically, but I believe they used to place a crown of laurels on the head of winners, as they had done in Athens when the games were True.
1: ancient. yes. And the fir- they did give medals out in that championship, or in, in that Olympics, but the champion got a silver medal, not a gold. And then the very next Olympics, which was 1900, in 1900 they gave championship trophies, but not medals, and then 1904... The gold, silver, bronze, but it was gilt again. It wasn't real gold, uh, following this tradition. But I just I find it fascinating because we think of the Olympics as this ancient, you know, games, and we think of the gold medal. Like when I say gold medal, ninety nine percent of Americans think Olympics, and yet the gold medal for the Open Championship predates it by thirty some years. Yes, you know the um, yeah. It's it's it is interesting. I hadn't really uh, been zeroed in on that the medal portion of it. I hadn't. So it is a fascinating fact, yes. I just love that, right? So there you go, folks. A little bit of golf history for you, a little bit of Open Championship history, a little bit of gold medal history. There we are. Our second item, Stephen, is an amazing one. Uh, We're looking at our second artifact for Antiquities of the Game. And one could argue this is one of the most important artifacts in the history of our game. Would you agree with that? Oh, there is no question of that. It is, um, I'm going to start crying. (laughs) I'm so emotional about seeing it. I, I, uh, I'm going to put it together here. Um, before we get into this item and its historical importance, I thought we could go through the provenance of this item. Um, the club we have before us here today, folks, uh, was owned by young Tom Morris, uh, who Stephen, uh, Proctor wrote a book about, Monarch of the Green. And, this is the putter he won all four of his Open Championships with, so to have this in front of us, um, I mean, I, it's not—it's a goosebump moment. Uh, I'm getting a little teary-eyed, and I, that's kind of embarrassing. But it is—it it literally defines part of our golf history. It is the emblematic instrument of the most transformative
0: moment in the history of competition in golf with Tommy. Tommy. Uh, truly transform the way the game was played, and this weapon here was his most powerful weapon, although the transformative aspects of a game were with other clubs.
1: Absolutely. So, Stephen, maybe before I go into the provenance behind the item, maybe you could give um, our viewers and listeners a snapshot, before we go into great detail, of Tommy's Open Championship victories. Uh, in, in short form, we'll go into more detail. And then... To his death, when he died, and then we'll go into the item you know, this specific item. Certainly. Tommy Morris Jr. was born in 1851 in St. Andrews, but that same year,
0: six months later, he moved to Presswick. When he was 14 years old, he made his debut as a golfer in a famous match at Perth. When he was only seventeen years old, he won the first of his open championships at Presswick Golf Club in eighteen sixty-eight. He won again in eighteen seventy-nine. He won again in eighteen seventy. At that time, the rules of the Open were that if you won it in three consecutive years, you got to keep the trophy forever. And so Tommy got to keep the challenge belt, as it was known, forever after that win. It was another year before they bought another trophy, the Claret Jug, and had the Open again for the very first time as a jointly operated thing between St. Andrews, Musselboro, and Presswick. It was played again at Presswick. Tommy won it again. And that is the brief history of his opens. He after that he got married and he had a couple down years in golf while he was courting and paying less attention to the game. He lost the open in 1873 to Tom Kidd and in 1874 to Mungo Park, Willie's senior's brother and uh, in 1875 he played two matches against Davy Morris excuse me Davy Strath and Tommy Morris played two matches in St. Andrews which are viewed by most historians as the turning point in the game because they were so ballyhooed like a giant prize fight, and they really spread interest in the game far beyond the border of Scotland. Two years later, sadly, on Christmas Eve, Tommy died in his sleep of what would have appeared to be a lung hemorrhage of some kind caused either by a burst artery or maybe by an undiagnosed case of tuberculosis. But in any case, he uh, was found dead in his
1: bed on Christmas morning by his father. And what year was that? 1875. So 1875. And that's where the story of this club comes into play. Obviously, it came; it was a pivotal moment in all four of those majors. So the history behind this club, as told by the World Golf Hall of Fame and its preeminent historian or former historian, Dr. Tony Parker, uh, it was owned, obviously, by young Tom Morris. It was then taken by William Octorlone or Willie Octorlone in 1875 from young Tom Morris's locker inside of old tom morris's shop it went from there to ce lamb who are should we speculate on who that might be no prominent amateur not sure there's so many lambs i haven't looked into see which
0: C which one ce is specifically so no i don't i would probably not go very far there and
1: there is a um silver what would you call that a tag a uh, a belt yes it belt. looks like
0: a little clasp that they've put on there probably to protect uh The putter from warping or something. Yeah.
1: So the silver clasp actually has C.E. Lamb embraced in it, and there is one eight, then a blank, and then a nine. So we're thinking 1879, 1889, 1899. At some point, C.E. Lamb has possession of the club. It was then sold to David Foster, who was the CEO of Colgate-Palmolive, in 1977, and then I think to, I believe, bolster the World Golf Hall of Fame – He donated it to the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1977, and it has sat in permanent display, this display behind us, actually, this beautiful wooden display, since 1977.
0: Yes, you know, in 1975 is when the World Golf Hall of Fame opened, and it was in Pinehurst at that time. And uh, the first class of inductees did not include young Tommy, included Harry Vard and some others, but not Tommy. And then the second class in 18, 1976 included Tommy, and the following year the putter was donated by the, the CEO, as you mentioned. I've seen it in the glass case, but I've never uh, seen it up front like this, and uh, you know, never had the opportunity to uh, pose with it the way Tommy poses on his tombstone in St. Andrews. We'll make sure to fix that. So that was a, a wonderful experience to see it up front, obviously, is very, very... As you say, a very touching experience, especially for a person like me who's. Absolutely, devoted for a person like you. 15 years of his life to uh, digging into the story of young Tommy and telling it for in a way that I hope the average
1: golfer can appreciate. So, what would you say about young Tom Morse's putting skills? Like, what did this club mean to his game? Tommy Morse was the most devastating
0: putter of his age and maybe of any other. In a good way. In a great way. He would hold putts from all over the greens. Uh, I think probably the best way of describing it is to uh, discuss the sort of post-traumatic stress disorder that afflicted Bob Ferguson of Muscleboro in the years after he played his famous match, multiple matches against Tommy. Ferguson had played Old Tom in, I think, 1868. Uh, Keep in mind, Tommy's 17. And just annihilated Old Tom in a series of matches. And uh, Old Tom was a very great golfer himself, four-time winner of the Open Championship, capable of shooting close to his age and to his ancient years. But he had many periods of life when he was off form, uh, partly because, you know, obviously he had a shop that he ran that made clubs and balls. He tended to green at St. Andrews. He designed golf courses all over. He was very busy. So there were periods of his life where his game would fall off. That was one of them, when Bob Ferguson basically humiliated him in a series of matches, and Tommy decided that needed to be addressed. He then challenged Bob to a same series of matches over the same courses, and um, let's just say he set matters right rather aggressively. Uh, in the last match at Loughness, he, made, he started just making putts from every place, and uh, Ferguson remembers it to a historian named George Colville, who wrote a book called Five Open Champions in the Musselboro Golf Story. And in there, Ferguson says that Tommy would strike the ball with his putter, look at his caddy, and say, pick it out of the hole, laddie, while it was running toward the hole, and then march off to the next green. Which you can imagine the psychological intimidation of that, particularly when the ball kept going in. So these are like 40 feet putts, 50 feet putts. He hits the putt, and he says, pick it out of the hole, laddie. And then he walks off to the next green, and Ferguson was, you know, yeah. He'd never seen anything like that. Well, the truth is no one had ever had. And that Tommy could putt like that on a more or less ordinary basis. Uh, and even though he was a great golfer, fearless golfer, great striker of the ball, it was the putting that crushed everybody in the end.
1: Yeah. Much like Nicholas and Woods in their primes. Exactly. It was a differentiator. And this is the putter. It is amazing to see it and... Quite lovely shape
0: after all these years. You can see his father's name stamped in the head of the putter. Yes, right here. Uh, right Tom there. All, naturally, Tom, yeah. Tom Morris made all of his son's clubs. Yeah. And uh, so it's, uh, it's definitely one of the most important artifacts in the early of history of golf and probably in all history of golf. So I'm very excited to see it, and uh, I hope that whoever buys this uh, gives it a proper home. My own view of a proper home is the Royal and Ancient Golf Club of St Andrews, but that's just me.
1: <laughs> well, when I buy it, I'll let you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm kidding. This is going to be out of my price range. Mine too. It is. It's really it's something else. So it's a long nose putter, folks. At you at home that are listening, uh, the head is probably roughly four to four and a half to five inches head to toe. Um, it has, by modern standards, I'd say a very modest width to it. Uh, about an inch uh, from height. And if you look really closely at the face of the head, uh, not only is it significantly worn on the sweet spot, but it's also worn on the uh, antler. And he was known for that top spin to kind of hit it with the bottom of the club. Yes, he would he would hit the top of the ball when he putted uh, to make it roll better,
0: which which was an issue of some significance in the age when Tommy was playing and the mower had yet to be invented. Uh the greens were not like they are now. I would say a green in Tommy's age probably ran about four to five on a stint meter. And was probably more equivalent to what we would think of as the fringe. Uh, And so it was important to get your ball rolling uh, so that it didn't bounce all over the place uh, before it got into the hole. Tommy was a particularly bold putter. Some putters die the ball into the hole, and some putters rattle it into the back of the tin. And Tommy was a, was a rattler. He's a rattler. I like that. Into the back of the tin. So he went boldly for the hole every time for the very simple reason that if he missed, he didn't care. He would make the next one. He was extraordinarily confident, uh, almost to the point of arrogance, but he had that charm that, say, like an Ali has, where you can be walking around
1: saying, I'm pretty, I'm
0: pretty, <laughs> and people still love you.
1: Yeah, and he was bold, right? I mean, you're just like that. He was bold. He wasn't afraid of the fact that he was the greatest golfer of his era. He was very knowledgeable of that, as a, even as a young man. When he was
0: starting to play in the Open Championship, and after the first time he won it in 1867, he would privately tell his dad and Davey that he was destined to get the belt, and he knew he was going to get the belt, in much the same way that Bobby knew he was going to win the Grand Slam uh, as the year 1930 unfolded, he believed a lot of golfers believe that the results are written down in the Book of Destiny long before anybody picks up a club to play in the match. And Tommy was probably, it's not written down, obviously, but the impression you get is that Tommy was one of those players and uh, that knew that the belt had been written down in the Book of Destiny for him, and obviously that is how it turned out. He mentioned that in the ceremony that filed the party, I guess I should say, at Mr. Leslie's Golf Inn when he arrived back in St. Andrews the night after the championship, and was uh, met at the train station by basically a huge crowd of golf fans and carried on their shoulders from the train station at the 17th hole all the way up through 17, 18 to the golf inn, which was right there on the same street as the Royal and Ancient Clubhouse is now, and they had a big party in there. Uh, imagine a lot of people were trying on the belt don't know that to be true yeah, but how could right, it be otherwise right. and uh, he mentioned there that uh, he had uh, always believed that he would be it would be his destiny to win that
1: well we've told a little bit about the history of this club maybe um if we could rewind just a tad bit because we were talking about the championship belt that he retired mm-hmm. um walk us through the history of where that went so he passed away in 1875 who took ownership of that belt, and where does it reside now? I guess I, we're going.
0: So pretty much for all of Tommy's childhood, the belt resided on a mantle in the Morris's living room, and not not y- just his. Y- yes, it was a, it was a practically a Fairly heirloom. His father had won it four times, uh, three of those, uh, you know, in Tommy's really early childhood. So he grew up with that trophy, a frequent visitor to his house. Not every year. Obviously, Willie Park Sr. won the first one, and Willie Park Sr. also won four, although one of those, to be honest, and I don't mean to take away from Willie Park, he was a tremendously great golfer, was the year of, of uh, Tommy's death when none of the Morris family participated. Uh, I think it may have been the year of his wife's death, excuse me. When his wife died, none of the Morrises played because they were in mourning. And uh, in any case, um, y- y- it was there frequently, and, you know, obviously from 1870 onward to all those five years it would be there. After Tommy died, uh, his father you know, kept the, the belt as his prized possession. And the very first thing he would do when any visitor came to the shop was to get out the belt and show it to them and tell them the story of his son's glories. That was his favorite thing to do, as you might expect any father's favorite thing to do. And uh, when he died in 1908, the only survivors in his whole family were grandchildren, uh, William Bruce Hunter being one of them. Lizzie, Tom's sister, had married James Hunter, who was quite a wealthy timber merchant in the United States, became one. In any case, the children uh, donated it to the royal and ancient, where it has been ever since.
1: That's great. It's just great. Um, so, was, there, was the championship belt ever in young Tom Morris's house, or was it always in the old, old Tom Morris's house during, you know, his, his life prior to... Well, t- in Scotland, in that age, uh, people did not
0: live outside their parents' home unless they were married and required sure, a home of their sure.
1: own. Sure, I mean, I guess I'm talking about after he got married. Did he take it? Do we know, or... He pro- We don't know for certain,
0: but I think it's, it's reasonable to assume that he would have taken the belt with him. He moved for a brief time to Albany Place, which is just up the street from his parents' house on North Street, and had a lovely home there, rather an audacious home for a person of his class, uh, the the, the denizens of St. Andrews thought, and uh, he was one to lavish his money around in a way that Victorians would have thought of as vulgar. But in any case, um, he probably had it there with him, although it's not a known and written down fact. But he only lived there one year because, of course, he was married less than a year when his wife died. Yeah. After his wife died, he immediately moved back to his parents' house.
1: And then shortly after, he passes away. Shortly,
0: uh, shortly after he died. His wife died in September, and he died in December. Devastating.
1: Um, so let's, let's talk a little bit about the putter. So I, I didn't measure it. I believe it's over 36 inches. We have a um, sheepskin wrap on it for the That's grip. a new grip, though. It is a yes, new grip, mm-hmm. absolutely. Uh, then we have the, the plate, the C.E. Lamb plate followed by this beautiful mahogany painted shaft, or, or I should say coated shaft. And then of the style, we have a splice neck grip. So, uh, I'm sorry, splice neck shaft. So the splice neck shaft, what they do is they cut that shaft in half down to a point. They do the same with the head. they glue to the, together both of those sides and then wrap them aggressively around with twine. And I'll tell you an interesting story um, that died out right around the age of the Haskell ball. But Walter Hagen was such a big fan of the splice neck that when he won the open in 1929, he used splice neck shafts, a driver shaft. It was so outdated by then, yes. but he believed really in the connectivity of a splice shaft over a socket. People really felt
0: that they gave him a better feel for the club head. When it was, a, they called it a scare joint, I think, yeah. and uh, that was remained a preference of a lot of golfers. And uh, obviously, as time went on, you know, things became more and more manufactured as opposed to handcrafted. And obviously, socketing a club and simply slipping a pin in it is quite a bit easier than a scare net club, and also breaks less often. That's right.
1: Less less to make it, and a lot easier. Fewer not repairs, to break it. absolutely. Yes. And then, just in that style. Uh, We also have the large lead weight, which gave you the head weight and control that you'd look for. This lead weight in the back of this putter is significant. Uh, It is clear that young Tom wanted some weight behind that to really give the ball a pop.
0: Yes, and you needed to. As I say, the greens were not great. Willie Park wrote a book in 1921. Okay, so this is a long time after Tommy, obviously. And golf, their mowers had invented by then and all that. Uh, And were in use on every green. But part of the instruction... Is how to putt your ball out of a cupped lie, so that gives you such. That's sort of like, a, in other words, if there was a, almost like a divot on the green, yeah. how to putt your ball out of it. So that just gives you a sense of there's quite. a One of the things that I don't believe modern golfers quite appreciate is the significance of vast improvements in agronomy and greenkeeping in making the game easier. Uh, it was a very difficult game in those days because the conditions were even on the great courses, were what we would think of as very rugged. Uh, And, you know, the idea that you would have a cupped lie on the putting green, I think every modern golfer would simply have an aneurysm and break down on the spot.
1: God forbid it happened in the U.S. Open, we'd never
0: hear the end of it. Yes. You can't (laughs) even have a divot in the fairway. Yeah. I loved Lee Westwood. I loved him even more when he said, the golf was never meant to be fair. Absolutely. That wasn't the idea. But anyway, we digress.
1: So this is coming up for auction. I mean, it's really – that's
0: staggering, is it not? I was surprised when you called me and told me that it was going to be auctioned. I thought, why would a would a Hall of Fame that possesses Tommy's putter wish to auction it? But I guess it's priorities change, and yeah. it's apparently being auctioned for a charity to help uh, imp- grow the game and increase the number of Reach players. Program. And so, you know, obviously that will serve a great purpose, and uh, it is, you know – I wish I was a rich man.
1: Oh, my goodness, right? I mean, I look at this. I, I still, I'm, I get emotional every time I look in its direction, which is why I'm looking at you a lot <laughs> <laughs> during this. But the impact of this club on the game of golf is so immense. Like, we are not playing, or are the Open Championships not playing for a claret jug if not for the greatness of this putter and the man behind it? Well, you know, I think also
0: you can say with very big confidence that it is unlikely... ...that the game would have expended beyond Scotland had it not been for Tommy. Absolutely. You know, prior to Tommy, English pap- no Englishman played golf, to speak of. Possibly very elevated members of the royalty played, like King Charles II. There's new evidence from Neil Millar, the historian that he played. But it was not played by English people. And uh, Tommy's fame was so enormous that English people began to hear of him and began to be interested in it. Particularly, you've got to keep in mind, obviously, there were tremendous business and mercantile relationships between Scotland and England and everything else. And a lot of those merchants then brought the game back home because they found it pretty interesting when it had a swashbuckling star like Tommy. I would say the modern comparison for Tommy would be Sevvy Ballesteros. You know, frequently wild, fabulously creative, right. just confident like a matador, uh... You do that was Tommy, and he was an attacker. He was yes, he he only knew one way to play, which is, which was attack. Yeah, and attack fiercely on every which single a shot. Which is
1: counter style of his father. Who oh, was of every golfer, who not just cautioned. Tommy. Yes. every.
0: Scots have a wonderful word called "palky," uh, which means uh, cunning in wit or strategy. And the great golfers were considered pawky or scientific, oh. meaning that they could maneuver their ball to avoid trouble on the way to the green and get a tidy five. Tommy didn't care about that one ounce. You know, he just swang as hard as he could on every shot, and if he got in trouble, he loved that. He was like, okay, now, and he would make these miraculously recovery shots sevy from the car park shots, basically on a regular basis. And uh, and so that just made him a fun player to watch, and I think it's fair to, you know, there's a question as to, Games come and go in the world. Whether or not golf would have even survived as a game had now Tommy come along is a very big question because in the age right before Tommy in the 1850s, golf was at a low ebb, it's fair to say, and some might view it as in the process of dying out. And that was partly because of the massive expense of the feather ball and the fact that people who were average citizens could not play what you would call proper golf. They could only you know, play with whatever equipment they could scrape up. But when the gutty came along, everyone could play. And what they needed then was a star to promote the game, and that's what they got, Tommy. Mm -hmm. And that helped move the game into England and obviously from there around the rest of the world. So it's Tommy is the transitional player. The rise of Tommy is the thing that takes golf out of Scotland.
1: And so this putter, and and obviously the, the man behind the putter, you might not have Harry Varden. Harry Varden travels the United States in 1900 and grows the game to another level. You you think that there's a pretty good lineage of the growth of the game that comes back to this putter and the man who wielded it. Yes.
0: You know, I've read extensively in the history of golf, uh, starting from the very beginning all the way up until the modern age. And in doing that, I've become convinced that the transformative moments in golf— all are arise from apocal performances on the field of play. You know, the history of golf has tended to be written primarily from the point of view of private clubs that were hugely influential in the development of the game, like the Royal and Ancient and the Honorable Company and Royal Wimbledon in England and Royal Liverpool. But the truth of the matter is, if you look at your own lifetime and see what has happened, Tiger Woods has taken the game with his... Astronomical Tommy like performances, I like to say, uh, and moved it up to a different level. And that's how the game has progressed all along. Tommy Morris, John Ball Jr. winning the Open Championship, Harry Varden, 1998, 1898, 1899, 1900. In 1898, 1999, Harry Varden played in 17 golf tournaments, won 14, and finished second the other three times. And that made him the second immortal after Tommy. And then it goes on that way with Bobby Jones, with Ben Hogan, with Jack Nicklaus, and now with Tiger Woods. And that is how the game has moved along. And how it's expanded to other places and become more popular is people appreciating these heroic performances.
1: And we have this before us. Yes. This is coming up in the golf auction in like a couple weeks. What is this worth?
0: I don't... Myself, I would think of it as a priceless object. Right.
1: Um, I mean, Babe Ruth had hundreds of bats he used throughout his career. Um, Yes. Young Tom lived to the age of 25? 24. 24. Thank you. 24 years old, four Opens, the youngest ever winner. To this day, two records. He's still
0: the youngest person ever to win any major championship. 17 years old, five months and eight days. Probably never broken.
1: I mean, yeah, it's That, really that one, I think, is
0: more vulnerable. Yeah, you think? You know, various, okay. the, the only time he ever got mentioned up until uh, books started being written about him by Kevin Cook and later by myself uh, was when some young kid like Lydia Ko was about ready to become the youngest major champion winner sure. of all time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I do believe that day will come. For I do men th- as well. Uh, I
1: think it's yes, more difficult. So. Yes, yeah. I do think so. I do think so,
0: ultimately. So you think it's amateur at will the trend, win, likely. Players are getting younger and younger and younger. So true. Yeah. So true. And... Uh, I also feel I do feel the one record he have that will stand for all time is the four consecutive Open Championships. I don't see that ever getting touched. There are a few records in the history of any game uh, that never get broken. That's one. The other one I think will be eight Amateur Championships by John Ball. Th- that'll never that'll never get touched.
1: What do we think it's going to sell for? God, I have I, I, no idea. I mean, just... if I told you. Two million dollars would you would you say that's a possibility i'm not saying it will, but I'm like it's something you know, I, like this that is this I would think to the it'd be worth
0: that amount, but you know the thing about it is I have to be frank is i'm not a I'm a humble newspaper man sure. I'm not a person who buys item at auctions sure. and so I don't know that much about the world of golf auctions and what things sell for, but I cannot let me just say this I cannot imagine an item that has more value being auctioned than this putter
1: so we'll so see what it brings if, if we were going to compare this club with let's look at clubs from history of, of the game of golf okay so you have the perth clubs right mm-hmm. which are like the oldest known uh, i believe they were made for king james the fourth maybe the third no it was the fourth i think um we have um hogan's one iron Yes. we have alan robertson's i believe club that he shot a 79 with at, at the old course the first mm-hmm. man to shoot a 79 at the old course or break 80 um 1858 yes yeah what, where do we put this club? In that I would say pantheon.
0: if there was one, for me, I would put it at the peak of that, maybe Allen's is its equal. Allen's such a legendary figure Absolutely. and a really important but, but figure in the game. to be
1: fair, less people know the story of Allen Robertson. Way, way fewer. I yeah. would say that if there
0: was a club more valuable than this, it would be Tommy's Rudiron, uh, for the yeah. reason that that is the transformative club. Uh Many of your viewers and many people may not know that prior to Young Tommy and the advent of the gutty ball, nobody played with
1: iron clubs. You used that little rut iron. It would blow up a feathery ball. Yes, yeah, so it just – you'd be uh, – <laughs> Which, like- by the way, was made of – it was leather, stuffed with goose feathers. So you can yes. imagine hitting a metal club and you catch it a tad thin. Yeah, it's feathers. basically it looks like
0: you're in a pillow fight and, and you Absolutely, lost. absolutely. Uh, so – I would say that uh, the rut iron, Tommy was the first person to realize that the gutty ball was hard enough that it could withstand the pounding of irons. And uh, he thought, you know, what I need to do is fly this ball in the air to the green and land it right next to the flag. And that's what he began doing with the rut iron. Allen had a club he called the frying pan, which was a pretty high lofted iron. Mostly they used those to take the ball out of rabbit scrapes or cart ruts that were left on the golf course. Every golf course was public. And Most of the golf courses were public in Scotland,
1: and that age. And so, uh, wheel by public, by the way, it means people would walk across the links. People would it's not be just doing their laundry like on I the links. There, people right. would be
0: drying their laundry on the links. There were rules about uh, lifting your ball uh, out of a laundry uh, layout and and playing from behind it. So people were doing their laundry. They were taking a stroll. Workmen were on the green uh, course with wheeled carts, leaving big giant ruts. If it was a little bit wet out, and the ball would settle in those. And of course, there's no free drops. Uh, they you'd have to play right out of there. And that this little stubby headed iron club was used for popping the ball out of disastrous areas. Well Tommy decided, you know, that that little open faced thing could be used to hit the ball to the green, and he did. And that is the revolutionary moment when he starts using irons. And within a decade of his death, there are multiple types of irons in use and being played with and writers are lamenting the fact that the greens are being torn up with divots and this and that mm. and the other I love thing. It. Uh, but uh, but that's the transformative club. So I would think of that as ever so slightly more valuable than this sure. one, um, just because that is the act that transformed that the game. Yeah, uh, the use of irons and uh, bringing irons into play. It, it um, so even though the putter was his most dangerous weapon, and you could make an argument that that makes it more valuable. I would say the transformative club, if you had it, was his rod iron, which I have no idea where that would be. And,
1: and to give people an idea of the rod iron. Uh, the rut iron was essentially just a bit larger than the golf ball itself. It would sit, it was called the rut iron because of a wagon rut or it would call it be called a track iron because of the wagon track. And it was very small to wield it in a full swing was daring it. it I mean, I, we didn't call it, we'd call it a foozle back then, but the shank was an, a, a real possibility in a full swing approach into the green. Oh my gosh. Yes. And,
0: You know that just goes to show you the wonderful Tommy hand eye coordination Tommy obviously had. He was surprisingly strong. You know he was a relatively thin person and not very tall, but he had amazing strength in his hands and wrists. And uh, I don't know if it's really true. This is the kind of thing that tends to be apocryphal. Uh, But but uh, it is said that sometimes he would even waggling the club he was so strong that he would break the shaft of it waggling (laughs) now I think that's probably untrue but I would say that he was more likely with the ferocity of his swing you know do you remember how Gary Player used to almost fling forward at the end of a shot
1: or just start walking that That was was, the
0: way Tommy hit the ball he would just lash at the ball and his hat would go flying into the crowd and he would seem to be almost moving forward with the shot Um, and so uh he was just an exciting player to watch in that Movie way. Movie star and...
1: before movies.
0: Yes, very much so.
1: Yeah. Oh, I mean, I, I'm looking at the club. It just, I, I, the, I'm I, rarely at a lack for words, but this item, I mean, part of it is it's emotional for me because it's going into an auction and anybody can obtain this. I mean, it, it could go to the R&A, it could go to the USGA, it could go to the British Golf Museum. It could go to a private collector, and there is a chance within our lifetimes this is the last time we put our eyes on this club.
0: Yes, There's that, a chance. That, that, that is, I would have to say, the most probable outcome. Uh, but, you know, that I would personally think of that as sad. I think certain things uh, belong to the larger history of the game and not necessarily to individuals. And that's easily said by a person who doesn't have the money to purchase uh uh, things of this nature. So I, I I understand that. But I do feel like certain things belong to the history of the game, and I, I w- would put it this in that category. You know, I've had the great privilege of, of, of getting a tour of the Royal and Ancient Golf Club from historians Peter Crabtree. I would not be sitting here having this conversation with you if it were not for the fact that Peter Crabtree adopted me, basically, when I was trying to find my way in golf history. And he and David Hamilton, another distinguished historian of St. Andrew's gave me a tour of all the artifacts in the RNA of which many of Tommy's clubs are there and it's just you know those are the places you feel that you ought to see the great items of the game at the USGA or at the RNA who are the stewards of our game but certainly if I had the money to buy this I would absolutely want it and whether I then had the uh Outlook to give it to someone else is, is,
1: I guess, a question that I could only answer if I had money. Yeah. I, I am a proponent of the free market. So if, if you buy this and you put it in your collection, I'm all for you. I will say I need to stop looking at it while I talk. Um, I will say that if a private individual buys it, first of all, congratulations, because you have earned my respect. Uh, the second part to that is I would just – I would say implore – perhaps, and not so much even a donation, but owning it, but allowing it to be displayed for a certain time or regularly, even if it's still in your possession, within a series of museums would be fantastic for the general public and our better understanding of golf history.
0: Yeah, no, that definitely would. And, you know, and I I think that, you know, obviously whoever buys this will have made a substantial investment and, you know, it becomes their complete right to decide what is best to do with it you know and i don't want to even though i have my own view of things i don't want to suggest that anybody would be ignoble or anything like that so i just want to make sure i don't come across the wrong way it's just a, a personal view as historians though yes you want yeah. people to be able you want to see, people it. To be able to see it
1: saying that i have a pretty good collection myself and i try to share those things via the podcast via social media via film um, but but you need a larger golf office I do. Thank you. I hope my wife's listening right now. That's very important. glad you made, like, mention here. (laughs) So I think one other thing to mention before we go back to uh, Stephen Proctor on Young Tom Morris is this club actually does bear the trait of what they call the St. Andrew's Bend. And we'll catch this on film, obviously, for you at home. I'll try to describe it. But if we roll this to the heel, to the grip, there is about what would you call that, about an inch bend in the shaft? Yes, maybe even more. And that is a purposeful bend. Oh, sorry, roll it like this? Just roll it back. Oh, like this? Yeah. Gotcha. Um, so as I roll this back and forth, this is on film, but I'm, I'm going to walk you folks through it at home if you're listening to this podcast or in your car. There's about an inch bend in the shaft, and it's perfect, purposeful. It is a mark, generally, of a St. Andrew's golfer. And, I, you know... It, how, how would you describe the bend? If you were to describe, it bends away from the golfer toward the ball? In yes, the
0: shaft? and it really, what, what the, the traditional style of putting in that age is different than what we do now, as you might expect. People stood a bit farther from the ball than we do now. If you take a putting lesson now, they'll tell you that your nose should be over top of the ball, whereas uh, in those age, Tommy, in particular, would stand rather far back from the ball. Uh, And the bend in the shaft helped you get the putter head flat on the green as you were standing farther back because when you're standing closer up, obviously you can stand the the club up more more straight, and that helped you uh, get the proper angle for the club face on the ground. And uh, Tommy would stand with the putter. If you have ever had the privilege of seeing his grave site in St. Andrews, which I think of as one of the most inspirational sites ever— you can see that the that the sculpture of him that's in the middle of his gravestone, which is nearly life size, he's standing over a putt, and you can see that he's relatively far from the ball with by this modern With putter, standards. with that exact same putter, yes.
1: Oh. <laughs> so it's um, I know, I the, know, um, I have to breathe. It's amazing. I mean. I- I know, I I already have. Unfortunately, I've cried a little bit today. Maybe the first time I've cried on the show. It is just
0: amazing. It's a wonderful thing. And, you know, I, uh, I recommend that every golfer who goes to play St. Andrew's needs to take one trip north to the cemetery. And when you walk into the cemetery from South Street or North Street, either way you enter through the gate, look across to the other side, and even from, from any distance, from any vantage point in the ceremony, cemetery, you can see the tomb of Tommy. It stands, there's a wall, an ancient stone wall, that goes all the way around the cemetery, which I would say is about 10 to 12 feet high. Uh, and Tommy's tombstone is mounted on that wall uh, with the, with a the life-size uh, image of him putting, and, and He's uh, it's the family grave site. So his father's tombstone is flat on the ground just below his, much smaller and less imposing. Alan Robertson's tomb is not far away, it's a little obelisk. It's obelisk, yeah, Not with his Nearly face, yeah. yes, with his face and his golf clips and not nearly as but the Tommy thing is very, very imposing. And I don't know, it's I personally had a reverential feeling standing in front of it. I had just started dabbling in golf history when I went there and looked at it, and it was looking at that. And realizing as I read the inscription that 60 golf clubs, I did know that 60 golf clubs in 1870 was about all the golf clubs there were, and uh, all 60 of them contributed to this monument. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, so these are lords and nobles and landed gentry, and they're all taking money out of their own pocket to build this mammoth honorific to a working class guy which was not their inclination in 1870. So it occurred to me, wow, what amazing, what a story. What and and that was when I that was that moment standing there that in front of the tomb moment. looking at this putter. This putter uh, yeah. being used that I said, you know, this is the story I think I want to tell is why why would men of 60 golfing societies decide that this had to be etched in stone forever and remembered forever. What was the story? How did it unfold? And that's why I set out to do the Tommy book. So I guess you could make the argument that it's this very artifact sitting in front of it that that made me devote uh, myself to that story. Uh, and then, you know, from that, decide that, you know, the life I'm going to have in retirement is telling the great stories of the game uh, using the skills that I was able to accumulate during a career in, in journalism. So... Uh, it has a lot of importance to me personally, and uh,
1: I really, really recommend that you take the moment to go see that cemetery. It's, it's an inspiring sight. So I'm going to take a moment. You, you're the author of Monarch of the Green. We did a podcast on it, I believe, mm-hmm. last year, which was... Two years ago. Two years ago, thank mm-hmm. you. It's, I can't believe it. the podcast has been around for three years, to be quite frank. I didn't think anybody would listened in the beginning. Um, but go into a little bit. Um, you You saw this monument to young Tom Morris, uh, if people haven't listened to that podcast, if you could give them uh, an idea of his importance to the game. I know we touched on it a little bit. What sticks out to you of his impact in the game, and why should people today care about not just this putter, but the man behind the putter, this man up here in front of us? You know, I would say uh, multiple things. The things we've
0: already discussed, which is the way he changed the game was played. He fundamentally changed the idea of golf from a game of caution to a game of attack. And that's pretty much been the progression of the game from that day to this one. And I would say that, you know, in a certain way, Bryson DeChambeau's approach, which I personally am not a giant fan of, uh, represents sort of the uh, natural unfolding of the attack approach. Hit it as far as you can. Attack everything. And uh, And Young Tom might have...
1: Enjoyed the game, oddly enough, from his style. He loved a lash.
0: Yes, he took a giant lash at it all the time. He was a low-ball flyer, and most of his distance came from run rather than carry. Uh, But, but, you know, so he did that. He was the first person written about in England as far as golf was concerned. Oh, I didn't know that. You know, the English newspapers didn't write about golf at all. They started covering the Open Championship probably a little bit before Tommy. But by the time Tommy was coming of age— the English press was following his every move. You know, when he came into England twice—once in 1869 to train for the getting the belt, which he which he knew he was going to do—but he made a playing tour where he played Backheath and Westward Ho and a number of other places, and uh, and that got—I mean, literally, there were. That's when people started recording shot by shot, which had never been done. I mean, you know, when you got a, a an open championship report, it was like three yes. paragraphs. It was, yes, you know, absolutely. with the. Uh, a lot of it, those three paragraphs devoted in to the... early days, it might have been one. Yeah, it's mostly devoted to the famous people who were there watching, not to the golf itself. When Tommy <clears throat> got to be so famous, it was about, became about the golf. That was a hugely transformative thing. And uh, so, you know, Tommy takes the game out of Scotland and begins the process of making it a modern game in every respect. And that's why he's such an important figure. The, the underline of my book is Pioneer of Modern Golf, and that's the truth of it. He, and the reason that they wanted that statue of him in St. Andrews because every person of his age was aware that Tommy was a pioneer. And they wanted people of all generations not to forget that, which sadly they mostly did. And that is just life, you know. Yeah. My favorite Bernard Darwin line is, as time goes ruthlessly on and makes dim the r- brightest of records. And uh, that, that's what happens to most great golfers,
1: honestly. So we look at this um, as we finish up our show here. Uh, this is might be one of the last times we lay our eyes on this club. I hope
0: not, but it probably it, it may well be. Could. At least I have done it, so yeah, that's a good that's thing. That's
1: right. That's right. Um, well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, it's I just, always
0: a pleasure to be on with you, Connor. Uh, I really admire what you do to promote interest in the history of the game, uh, and you know we are kindred spirits in that way. The reason I do the books, books are not way to earn a lot of money uh, but the books bring the story of golf to the person that tees it up every single weekend and knows very little to nothing about the heroes of his own game and you know what you do and what I try to do is to bring those stories back into the everyday conversation the whole point of the Tommy book from my perspective was to restore Tommy to the conversation about the greatest players who have ever played. And uh, I think uh, I will say that I see more and hear more about Tommy all the time, and that gives me uh, great joy because I feel like the whole point of it is Tommy needs to be remembered, John Ball needs to be remembered. The only, you know, Not very many people get, get remembered in the way that they ought to do uh, for some of these unbelievable accomplishments. And I, I find it hard when I'm watching modern golf coverage – Uh, that uh, so much of it is presented as if the history of the game begins with Arnold Palmer. And not to diminish Arnold Palmer, he's one of the most transformative figures in the history of golf. But an awful lot of great things have happened in golf And to hear broadcasts and hear people cavalierly say, this might be the greatest this of all time. And most of those people have no idea what all time means. You know, they say their knowledge does not extend far enough back and they don't realize the things that have happened, the incredible, amazing things that player after player after player has done over the ages uh, that are just all forgotten. And I just think it's helpful to remember the history of your game and uh, that's why I'm doing what I'm doing, and that's why I so much appreciate what you're doing.
1: Well, I, I do appreciate it. And, and I think there's two things I'd bring up there. I, I, one of the great things about clubs from this era is the true craftsmanship behind it. Now, folks at home, it's it stamped Tom Morris on the head, but there is, I'd say, a pretty strong possibility that it was made by Robert Forgan. Robert Forgan made much of Tom Morris's wood-headed clubs. He was the master. He He came from a lineage of wooden club makers that is all the way, you know, to uh, Philp. Yes. Uh, we, we, or, um, sorry. He took over Philp's shop. Philp's shop. Well, was his son-in-law. Yeah. His son-in-law, he was related to him. I know he was related to him one way or the other. He became his apprentice and became master. He made uh, clubs for the King of England. Um, master. So it's like a master's clubs being wielded by the other master. There's that piece to it. Um, I think you're right. I think that golf gets discounted more so in the Hickory era because they see this equipment as inferior to what we play today. But when you saw the achievements and what they could accomplish with that equipment, it's staggering. As someone who's played gutty golf and Hickory golf, I tell you the things they did with these clubs is nothing less than miraculous.
0: Here's what I'd like to do is to give somebody, Tommy, seven clubs, exact reps of them, a gutty ball, and send them out. At Preswick on the original twelve holes for thirty six, and let's see what they come up with. I'm not going to guess. There's going to be many one forty nines.
1: I'll give you a good example of this. So I'm going to I'm going to out you, uh, Larry Gladson. I love you to death. Okay. He's the head pro of Elmcrest Country Club, and I started playing gutties over ten years ago. I, for a, a two year period, that's all I played. I just played gutty golf with long nose clubs and gutta percha balls. Uh, they were replica gutty balls. And one day I encouraged Larry Gladson to join me. Um, I think we were playing, I think it was just the ninth hole. I saw him out on the course. I said, come join me. We're going to tee it up, gutty ball on a sand tee. So of course, Elmcrest Country Club didn't have sand around. So I carried around this pot of sand and a bottle of water and I'd spray the water on the sand. You pick it out and you build a little one inch tee. The key to making a sand tee, by the way, is to make sure that the front edge is flat. A lot of people build them like a volcano with an angle. But the thing is, when you come into it, it's like a sand shot. Yeah. It takes it off. So you make it really wet on that facing edge to give you a vertical face and then hit. So I teed up Larry's ball and I believe he was using, it wasn't a Tom Morris. It was a Willie Park Long Nose original, uh, which I was crazy enough to do. It was really stupid. I mean, looking back, uh, you're hitting a priceless item, not this priceless, but a Willie Park made uh, Long Nose uh, play club with a real gutty and a terrible idea on my part. So Larry hit it in it. I don't know. It might've gone 50 yards and he was like, yeah, I'm done. I can't do this. <laughs> and it was, I mean that it's, it's that level of key to play that. And there's a different feel and a whippiness and the masterful play back then should never be lo- Overlooked.
0: Here's one thing I'll make a bet, any amount of money you want to bet. I'll give you Tommy's three clubs and see if you can hold the first at St. Andrews, uh, excuse me at Prestwick in three shots, which Ow. he did has 578 yard hole. He made a three when he started his uh, final round for the open. just as a signal to everybody if you think you're coming to get this, th- think again, I, I just th- that hole. it was hard to make six on that hole for regular golfers. Yeah. And Tommy made a three. And you can imagine was that was a master's level roar, you can
1: be certain of it, yeah, unbelievable it's just really, so I think before we move on, uh, I just want to uh, take a moment to talk about Monarch of the Green. I believe you are completely sold out of the first printing. is that the fair? hardbound edition has sold out uh, the, you can it probably is still
0: available in u k bookstores, although no one can go to them because they're on lockdown unfortunately um the uh it, you can buy. There are some that are sold a second secondhand on ABE books and other places, uh, but there is a paperback coming out July, uh, and uh, I look forward this to year, July twenty twenty. July first, yes, oh fantastic! Uh, so that'll be coming. Uh, you can pre order that even now, uh, apparently on their website. You know, as they say in Shakespeare in Love, he's the author. He doesn't know anything. That's me. <laughs> I uh, I don't have an agent. I just I just write, and uh, so I'm not always certain of, of every single thing going on, but I, I have been told that there will be a paper back in July and I'm, I'm looking forward to that to being available again. Uh, there, you know, fortunately I'm very pleased that there continues to be interest in, in the book. And, uh, and a lot
1: of that is due to the, your constant promotion of my, my efforts. I'm happy to do it. It's so, brilliant. So, book. so, so people, I, um, you buy the book, buy yeah. the book. So le- before we end, I, I'm going to, I lied that we're not done before we end. Can we talk? And if you say no, that's fine. You're working on a second book.
0: Yes. No, we
1: can talk about that. I didn't want to put you in a bad position. No,
0: no, it's fine. Uh, None of my work is secret. It's just uh, I'm writing another book uh, along the same theory uh, that really tells the rest of the story, what happened after Tommy, and uh, that story begins in 1890, essentially. Obviously, there's backstory from the moment that Royal uh, Westward Ho is founded. Uh, I... uh, I start the story in 1890 because that's the next apocalypse performance, John Ball winning the double. And it tells the story of how golf comes of age uh, and goes worldwide in that era after Tommy. So I've always been planning to do two books. To The story that has always interested me is how does a game that was virtually unchanged for a period of 400 years – From the time of the Gutty Ball's introduction to 1848 to 50 years later in 1898, it's already been a global game for a while. And when you stop and think about it, there are not many sports you can consider truly global. Uh, Football, as in soccer here in the United States, but football is one, tennis is becoming one, and golf is one, there are not many others. Uh, So how does that occur in a space of 50 years? And the truth of the matter is, that there were astonishing performances over and over that made it happen. tommys Johnny Balls, Harry Vardens, John Henry Taylors, James Braid's, great matches like that. These things created great excitement about the game. And of course, there were revolutionary inventions, none more so than the introduction of the rubber core ball, which is interesting. I think you'd have to say that the gutty ball ensures the survival of golf. Absolutely, yeah. And the rubber core ball ensures that the golf will become a worldwide game.
1: Yeah, that's a fair st- and then, But it also put us on a path that yes. le- leads to where we are today, where technology may be outracing what we've built prior. It certainly has
0: fundamentally altered the nature in the game in the way that many people feared at the time, in particular John Lowe. And uh, of St. Andrews, who was a very prominent amateur member of the Rules Committee, seminal person in, involved in new ideas about strategic architecture and so on. And all of them foresaw that, that you know, all along people have continued to believe that there will be a limit to what science can do. And all along, scientists have proven that there is no limit to what science can do. And the game has been the skill part of the game has been eroded slowly over time, uh, I think to the diminishment of the game, but I know that that's a very significant minority opinion in the world today. I think people like the long ball, and uh, I'm not confident that things will
1: change Something, much. I think something's going to change. I hope I, so. but I just but don't think. You can't, I mean, someday, you have to imagine, there will be people driving 500 yards. I mean, if you look at, as you said, not being able to hold back science... I, there's here's no a prediction
0: for you. Yeah.
1: Even if they set restrictions on the ball yeah. or on the clubs,
0: manufacturers oh. will figure out
1: We've been here before, using right?
0: those restrictions, yeah. how to make the ball longer yeah. and how to make the ball fly farther. It back, That's what I'm saying. We're so we're right back on the path. There is no stopping that. I, I mean, I hope there is, but I think that presents a real challenge. And the truth of the matter is, given different parameters, they'll look at the challenge differently,
1: and chances are they'll overcome it. And you still have to putt, and what better putter to end with than this one right here, in right. antiquities of the game. And the truth be told, the Bryson DeChambeau has turned himself into a pretty good he has. putter. He has. I think he
0: only had 23 putts yesterday, which is a staggering Unbelievable. accomplishment. So,
1: Well, thank you again. Thank you, Connor. I always appreciate being on. Yeah, And thank you, Vaughn Howyard, who is producing and filming with Story Lounge Film Company. There you go. Out of all of golf's relics... Young Tom Morris's putter must rank as one of the greatest artifacts in our great history, up there with Tiger Woods's Scotty Cameron Putter, Bobby Jones' Calamity Jane, and Ben Hogan's One Iron. a priceless artifact that believe it or not, will have a price on it in the coming weeks. Young Tom Morris is one of golf's immortals, and this golf historian. Being in the presence of this relic, it was one of the greatest moments of hosting this show. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Conor T. Lewis.